Today is February 23rd, 2024. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki Naganago Mekoche Chestakomaki or Dekots Nagotine Siku. Hi, my name is Red Thunderwoman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot. And Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my name in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. My Dene lineage roots me in the way up north in the Great Bear Lake tribe in Treaty 11. My people wore rabbit skin, so it's been referred to as the land of the hair people. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is an un, is uninvited to this area of Klincho Tene Indahe and Satu Dene meaning many big dog town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary, or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. Through my father, I'm a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having a Canadian Indian Act imposed status card, which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights. Indigenous Two-Spirit or the Indigenous 2 LGBTQ community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. So according to the 2023 Quality of Life Report from the Calgary Foundation, 31% of racialized Calgarians cannot find suitable employment. I am not a social worker, nor am I an elder, but and I don't speak on behalf of all Indigenous people, but I do share my journey and what I know. As a trauma-informed Dene woman who has attempted to run, joined harmful colonial parties, spent money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to travel or just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow for incarceration, a denial of justice, a denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples. I have work to continue, reports to advocate for, and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I think about all of this today. I hope we honor the many Indigenous lives lost for the so-called country named Canada. I hope you see your role in the importance of stopping harm, and as a citizen, see your role in reconciliation and as a treaty partner. Pride Month should never just be one month. It's important to understand the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on these lands by Christian outsiders. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest, acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. Can they be performative? Absolutely. It's important that they have meaning. So I encourage people to introduce themselves with their acknowledgement of their ancestors, stories of displacement, how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee, or other land displacement so we as Indigenous people know how safe you are to be around. If you're putting down Black women, if you won't pronounce your uh, local Indigenous nations' names, won't use your pronouns, won't say your story of origin, won't acknowledge stolen lands, won't acknowledge imposed economic oppression, or your role in reconciliation, 
I know you're not safe for me, my community, and definitely not my family. So understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101, because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties, and lies taught today in Canadian schools and media nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves native Calgarians, or whatever town you're from, show me that you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Uh, Jesse Winty's book, Unreconciled, explains it perfectly, as do many Indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that could save the planet from climate change, created by capitalist colonialism, but it would be a part of a treaty partnership, part of meaningful reconciliation, and honoring global initiatives like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Dainai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Good Stoney, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations of the Stoney Nations, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. I want to say thank you to previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe. You can also go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts, pin posts, and ways to contact me if you want me to show up at your school or something. So, um, you know, I am so happy to have returning guests because one, that means that they liked it, but two, that means that they got more to say. So I'm really grateful to have returning guests come here. And would you like to introduce yourself in your way, Danielle? Hey, I am Danielle, and I am an uninvited settler on Treaty 7 land. And I just want to say thank you for giving me the uninvited settler part, because I've added that now to all of the rooms that I'm in. And it's pretty interesting, the reactions that I receive as a result of it now. There's definitely a lot of white people who want to be a part of the land acknowledgement now, I'm finding, who will identify with their pronouns what treaty they're on. But the uninvited settler part, I definitely know there are people who don't like that. And that really is the most important part. Mm -hmm. It's not about like joining hands and being like, we're all here now. We're recognizing that the right name. It's like, yeah, this isn't my land. So even if I'm saying the right name, it's not mine. No one asked me to be here. Nobody wanted me to be here. And I'm here. So yeah, thank you for that. But I am definitely an uninvited settler on this land. Well, I'm grateful to hear that. I'm so grateful to hear that because I think that uh, I have heard people say, you know, I'm an invited guest. I'm like, well, did the like Blackfoot Confederacy make a a letterhead and send it to you? Like, how did that work? Because I'd love to know the process where you suddenly think you're invited to be here because, you know, unfortunately, just because you filled out your Canadian paperwork and paid your money to Canada doesn't mean you are invited by the original inhabitants of this land. And if you have no concept what treaty is and what being a treaty partner is, you are definitely uninvited. 
Yeah, totally. hundred percent. So I love that. And I've been using that. So thank you for educating me on that. Cause I think that's a great way to identify who you are. Yeah. You're welcome. I'm grateful for that feedback. Thank you. You're welcome. So how are you doing that loaded question? And, and that really like, because I, I know for me, I just like I hate performative land acknowledgements where people don't even know how to say the nation's name. I don't really love the question, how are you doing? We're four years in a pandemic. We're what, 10 years in a, the drug poisoning issue. Like I, it is such a loaded question to ask somebody, how are you doing? So Absolutely. I, yeah, that's what we're here to talk about today. So where would you like to even start with that conversation? Well, um, after you and I did our podcast back in, in, I think it was at the end of January, um, I had a a good old mental breakdown and sort of uh, ended up having to move home with my parents. So I'm coming live to you from my dad's apartment, um, which is like a huge shift for me. I haven't lived with my parents in a really long time, but I'm at a place right now where I can no longer afford to pay my rent and then live in the apartment. So it's like, if I pay the rent, I can't feed myself, I can't feed my animals, I won't be able to pay next month's rent. So I've had to put all my money in savings so I can try to save my apartment and pay my apartment rent. Um, But then I can't live at all. So I've had to humble myself and come home and, and be with my parents which I recognize is a privilege. So many folks don't have parents who will let them move in here. So many folks don't have that reality. So I recognize that that's a privilege. Um, but if it wasn't for my dad, I would have be, I'd be facing unhoused. I'd be, I'd be taking a look at that. And I'm trying to get support. Um, I'm trying to get uh, rent support. I'm trying to get income support. I'm trying to get mental health support. Um, and I can't get anything. Um, yeah, it's been a really, really painful month. I phoned the community paramedics on myself from my apartment on January 28th. Um, I had been using fentanyl and, uh, knew that I was in an unsafe place. And so phoned for help, um, because I didn't want to go to the hospital. And I knew that the community paramedics are a little bit more reasonable than, other paramedics, which is a good tip for people who are in Calgary. I They're not always great. Um, and they're probably not great if you're not white. But I have had some positive experiences with them. And so I phoned community paramedics on myself. I decided to do an at-home detox for seven days, did that, and then started the process of trying to get mental health support. Um, reached out to all of the immediate clinics that you can, was only able to be seen by one Um, And I'm just going to say names because I don't really care. I got in with the Rapid Access Mental Health Clinic, so RAM, uh, through Alberta Health Services and the Alex. So I got in with them. I went and I saw a doctor there and I explained to him that I was having a mental health crisis and that I really needed support. And the only support that I got was Suboxone. Uh, They wrote me a script for Suboxone right away. And I want to state that I'm not anti-Suboxone. I think that it is a resource that can be used. I think that it's a tool. I want anybody to have whatever tools feel good for them. For me, it's not the right tool. I was using opioids very sporadically. I wasn't using them daily. What was happening was when my workload got really high and I started struggling in my industry and being triggered and unable to get mental health support, I started managing that with benzos. So I was buying street benzos. I was buying things like... um, 
Xanax and Percocets on the street because I can no longer get a prescription for that through the doctor. So I was buying these pills that were laced, 100% laced with fentanyl because everything is laced with fentanyl right now. So we have this toxic drug supply, right? I thought I was buying one thing. I was really buying another thing. I started to build a dependency to that quickly. This was only in November and December that I had this return back to pills. And yeah, when I couldn't afford that anymore, I started having some experiences with fentanyl. Um, Very few experiences, not a lot, not what I've had in the past, uh, a quick lapse, uh, all a response to mental health, all a response to unsafe work conditions, uh, not knowing how I was going to pay my rent, struggling with psychosis, none of it related to the actual substance. So it's really confusing to me that when I went for help, the only help I got was Suboxone. And then I had this appointment, they gave me this Suboxone script. I don't like it at all. It's something that I have to take daily. It doesn't make me feel good. I find it really triggering. I don't like it. I go back the next week. I say, I don't like this. I need a psychiatrist. I need to be evaluated. They say, we can't have you see a psychiatrist for eight weeks. Let's up your Suboxone. So then they double my Suboxone. So now I've come back to my dad's house. My dad, who isn't a nurse, isn't a doctor. Sure. It's just a father who doesn't want his daughter to die. Yeah. And we are supposed to figure this out together alone with no help. Yeah. yeah. And so I decide to come off the Suboxone because it doesn't feel right for me. I don't want to build a daily dependency to something. I feel like it's being used as the way to sort of quiet me and quiet my cries for mental health care. So I've come off the Suboxone, I detoxed off of that myself in my dad's apartment. And now I'm like, what am I going to do? I no longer want to go to that clinic because I feel like the doctor will be angry that I'm not doing what he wants me to do. So it doesn't feel safe. So now I'm waiting for another clinic. Can't get into that clinic until March. When I get into that clinic, the process starts all over again. You do the intake again. You hope and pray that you get listened to. You get put on the list for the psychiatrist, which will probably be another two months. But Basically, in this time, I received no therapy, no mental health support, and really was left at the hands of my my father, who is scared and tired. So, of course, he doesn't want me to go anywhere. He doesn't want me to see anyone. He doesn't want me to do anything because he thinks if I die on his watch, it's his fault. So he's terrified. I'm isolated from community. I have no resources. And that's where we are. Wow. Holy So this feels like kind of like a prison or a hell. Yeah, it absolutely does. And the only option is to go to drug treatment. That's the only option is to go away to treatment. And I know that that won't work for me. I've been. Jeez Louise. So I hope that Albertans who are listening to what Danielle is experiencing here can understand how poor the Alberta mental health really is here and how difficult it is to get what you need. And now, you know, Danielle obviously recognizes themselves as a settler. Well, what's it like when you, you are from the South Sudan? What is it like when you're from, uh, when you're indigenous and you're trying to smudge like the, the lack of real health care, mental health care is just deplorable and i say that because i was just at latour's uh vigil uh he was killed murdered by the police in 2022 and who is this man he's a person who reached out having a mental health crisis 
So, you know, Danielle, like that, that's the said. other problem is, is that the fear. The yeah. fear. Like there's a huge part of me that regrets saying anything because what's happened now is I've lost my autonomy. Yeah. You know, if I was to go back to my apartment, if I was to do something that goes against what these people are telling me to do, I'm afraid that I'll be involuntarily committed. I'm afraid that they'll say I've come off Suboxone against a doctor's orders. I'm afraid that I'll be put in the psych ward. And that to me feels like absolute death. And I'm a white woman who, as you guys can hear, works in the sector, knows how to advocate for myself, has friends, knows the numbers. And this is the issue that I'm facing yes. because of colonialization and because of capitalism. Yeah. If I want to go to a trauma treatment center, which is what I deeply want to do, I recognize I need trauma therapy and I recognize it needs to happen in a place outside of my home. Because what happens is when I start to do my trauma work, my self-harm goes up. So I know that I need to do that work in a place where I'm safe. But those facilities don't exist unless you have $40,000 a month. And I don't have $40,000 a month. So I can't go to those places. And I'm afraid every time I go to the public sector that I will be seen as aggressive and disorderly and hysterical if I start to make questions, you know? I fawn with the medical professionals because I'm so afraid that my borderline personality diagnosis will be used against me to withhold me against my will. And I want the regular public to understand that if I went to the hospital right now, what would happen is the same drugs that I just came off of, benzos, is what they would put me on in the psych ward. So I would go to the psych ward and for three days, I'd be pumped full of the same drugs that I just came off of. And then I would get out and either have to find those drugs on the street and risk the toxic supply or withdraw again for the third time in a month. And I just don't think people understand that when you're mentally ill, you don't have the options to say no. You yeah. don't get to look at, like I said to the doctor, I want a psychiatrist. I don't want this medication. And it was like, too bad. This is what you need. I know what you need. And that's triggering as a woman who has been sexually assaulted, in an abusive marriage. These things are triggers for me. So now I wish I never said anything at all mm -hmm. because I'm in a position where I'm isolated, I'm without autonomy, and I have no resources. No. And, and that's the horrible part about all of this. And uh, no, I don't think the average Albertan understands. I, maybe a question I should ask you, not because I don't know the answer, but maybe because our listeners don't understand is why is the first thing that they do is put you on benzos? I'm going to be really honest here. And this is my personal opinion. I want to sure. state for a fact, I'm not a nurse. I, this is my personal opinion. I believe that they do not know what to do when someone is in a mental health crisis. I believe that the service providers are afraid and scared and a little repulsed by us. So what do they do is they give us the new lobotomy. They give us a benzo. They mm. give us an opioid. Because what does that do? That makes us palpable for them. That quiets us for them. That allows us to be completely silenced for them. 
you know, for me, when I was on that high dosage of Suboxone, when I wasn't using a high dosage of opioids, for me, I was completely anesthetized. You know, I was walking my dog and that was when I realized it wasn't right for me. I was outside walking my dog, which is one of the only things that brings me joy. And I realized I couldn't feel the joy anymore. Mm. I couldn't feel the sun. I couldn't, I couldn't feel anything. Yep. And that's worse to me than being in the manic low. So for me, it wasn't right. I'm so glad for the people who it's right for. And I, I defend their right to have that. Yeah. But me, it wasn't right. Yeah. And I think that it was given to me because it made me easier to be dealt with by professionals who really don't have an answer for me. Mm. What is the answer for me? I've been struggling with mental health for 15 years. Yeah. What's the answer? Sure. I don't know. And they don't know. And they don't want to say that. Yeah. So they pump me full of drugs that make me stop asking questions. Yeah. That's my opinion zombie you so that you're just a a zombie and not really living so then that comes to your quality of life your dignity um well and and joy why can't people with mental health issues experience joy too and uh, we don't set up our system in any capacity to care about that at all and I think that for folks who may not understand that, like they don't understand how limited everything is. So they don't know what it's like to do an intake at these places. Sure. So imagine, yeah. imagine you're at the lowest point of your life. You're hopeless, you're distraught, you're embarrassed, you're ashamed. And you go to a place and for an hour and a half, you have to answer every question about your life. Sure. How many times have you been sexually assaulted? When you were sexually assaulted, what was used? Uh, how? Tell me about the worst trauma. What was your adolescence like? Oh, tell me about your abusive marriage. How many times did you get hit? How many suicide attempts have you had? When you cut, where did you cut? What kind of cutting did you do? Like, it is so invasive. You have to go through everything that's ever happened to you with a complete stranger in a doctor's yeah. office and then go home afterwards. Yeah. You know, I just sobbed on the way home after my intake. And that was a big reason why I went with the first doctor I saw, because I didn't want to do another intake. They're so traumatic. And if you say, I don't want to answer that, what happens? Oh, you're not being receptive to care. Oh, you're not being grateful to the program. Oh, you're too difficult. We can't work with you. So you lose any ability to have boundaries about your own story. You have to just sit there and bleed out every awful thing that's happened and then go home. Yeah. I, uh, if you have a home. You know, uh, I was lucky enough a few years ago before the pandemic to be trained by the White Bison Society on, um, you know, how to basically deal with trauma. We called it uh, mending broken hearts. And so the to me, it it was laying out a timeline of all of our traumas. But we did that with help and support and process. Like this is like an eight week process. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know this person. I've never seen them in my life. And I have to be like, yeah, I was assaulted 17 times when I was 13 by an older man. Like it's just horrific. Yeah, and so unrelated to the care that I need right now. Yeah, yeah, it's not trauma informed 
um, actually yeah. the opposite. So it's um, it's like uh, calling the cops and having them escalate the, the problem instead of de-escalating, even though their talking points say they're de-escalating, just like the medical industry, the mental health industry say, oh, no, we're totally trauma informed. But clearly you're not if this is the the process. Right. And so, like you had said earlier, you're not excited about going to a new clinic because you know you have to go through the intake, which means you for an hour and a half, you have to talk about all your traumas all over again without proper follow-up care, even though that's like the whole purpose of all of this is try to get care. So, you know, I, I just want to tell people this and, and get it out there. I'm so grateful you reached out to say something because, again, I, I think that uh, one of the things you said that really struck a chord with me was how the actual industry itself is so dehumanizing and perpetuates the very stigma that they claim that they want um, regular folks to, you know, not perpetuate. Absolutely. <laughs> you think that we don't know when a nurse is disgusted with us? You think that we don't feel when a healthcare professional thinks that we're a waste of time? Imagine everywhere you go, everyone that you see thinking, why can't you just get it together? Yeah. What's wrong with you? Why are you being so difficult? And I don't know. I don't know why I still can't get it together. I don't know why I can't hold down a normal job. I don't know why I can't get out of my trauma response. I don't know either. So then to feel that from the person who's supposed to help me, to feel that they have no idea what to do with me and to genuinely know that they just want me to go away. That really leads into those suicidal thoughts because it's <laughs> like, wow, even the people who are supposed to help me are above me. And they will always be above me. Yeah. And they don't ask the right question. And that is, how is it our system has let you fall through the cracks to this point? And that's the Don't ever ask me what asking. I need. Exactly. I've never had a service provider say, hey, Danielle, like, what do you think would help you right now? Yeah. What would, what would make you feel like stable and grounded? They've never asked me that. It's no. never. And that's because we don't value people who have mental illness. We don't even think they deserve to be comfortable in their care. We think they should be happy and grateful for whatever scraps we give them. And and, and I would argue like right across the board for all the disabled community in general, right. I read some of the uh, experiences that folks with like uh, physical handicaps have. And it is, there is no dignity no integrity at all in these services and the way the government treats uh, the people. And so I just have nothing but empathy and, and I see it across the board. And I, I, I can't emphasize this enough to um, Albertans who are listening that like literally all your tax money is getting funded into these really awful, corrupt, um, poor, poorly like distributed resources for folks who need it they're not evidence-based most of the time and if they are they're like 30 years out of date like nobody and only be... relevant to white cis men because yep. that's the only people that was being studied on yep. so we also have to recognize those those elements too right like i have complex ptsd from repeated sexual trauma i'm not saying there aren't men that don't have that experience there absolutely are but we do know that that experience is more gendered from a female perspective we just know that that's a fact guys yep. so for me the care is so much more 
like there's so much more risk for trauma because I don't want to be touched against my will. I don't want to be in a room alone if I don't know how to get out of that room. Like the fear that I have of being in the hospital, like it is so palpable. Yeah. It is such a terrifying experience to be held against your will. And it's really the only option if you want safety immediately as a mentally ill person. You know, like, what are my dad and I supposed to do? I don't think people understand. These wait lists are months and months and months. I tried to fill out the rental paperwork the other day, and I don't have any of the requirements. I don't have a doctor's note. I don't, because I don't have a doctor. I don't have my diagnosis because it was given when I was in treatment 10 years ago. So there's all these things that you need to qualify for these programs, and I don't have any of them. So what do I do? I, I just don't know what people are supposed to do. And rent is going up. It's not going down. There's no cap on it. There's no jobs. Everybody keeps saying to me, well, you're going to have to get a job. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. I'm going to have to get a job. Where? Yeah. I can't go work at a bar when I'm trying to abstain from alcohol because it's not safe for me right now with my mental health. So that, that well, and back to consent. Better. Fuck. I was at, uh, I won't name the place, but Jesus, like, there's I, I used to waitress when I was younger and of course I eat out now and I just think of like the looks and treatment you get from from men it's disgusting and I hate oh, yeah, watching my own waitress being looked at in that way while she's getting me a pizza like it's I had to work at I had I worked at Earlton Palace down uh down in Mission and I'm all about calling people out. I worked there like 10 years ago when I was like a tiny skinny little 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 girl and I remember I came in one day and I had a shirt on and it was lower in the back and higher in the front and my manager told me to take it off and turn it around so that it was lower in the front and higher in the back. And this is just something he was allowed to say to me and I was just like, "Okay, thanks. I'll go do that." and went in the bathroom and did that. And so it's just like, and how, how many assaults did I encounter by line cooks and, and assistant managers? And, you know, yep. how many times was I like spanked with a paddle in the back of the kitchen, walking back to get my order? How many times was I whipped with a towel in, in, in my private parts by yeah. somebody working in the kitchen? Yeah. Uh, thousands of times. I know. Oh. I know it's disgusting. And and there really isn't because what are you going to do? Complain to your manager who just did that to you? No. Who's best friends with that guy? And then right? you get fired? Right? Like so, I, people don't get how misogynistic and disgusting it is here in Alberta. Is when so, you're, you're yeah, yeah, I can't go there. And then all of the last year I spent trying to make the social services work. Yeah. I put in hundreds of free unpaid labor yeah. trying to get a job in this industry. And guess what? Yeah. I'm not going to get a job in this industry because my voice is too passionate. I've been too vocal and no nonprofit organization is going to hire me because when you Google me, the media that I have done um, sort of uh, advocating for safe supply and better treatment is going to prevent them from hiring me. So I just wasted a year of my life doing unpaid work that threw me into mania that caused me to have this mental breakdown. So it looks like I've done nothing for a year to any other employer. They don't care that I like ran a warming space one night or did a volunteer drop-in thing. That means nothing to them. So yeah. can't get hired in my industry. Don't want to get hired in my industry, to be honest, because I don't yeah. believe in what we're doing. Yeah. So where do I go? Yeah. I guess I could try to be a receptionist or something. I have no schooling. Yeah. I have no certifications. And I'm mentally ill and in the middle of a crisis. Yeah. 
So I what know. do I do? You know, and yeah. this is me, a privileged white woman. And I really want to say that, you know, this is like the best possible situation for someone in this sort of a crisis mm -hmm. is what I have right now. Yeah. And I've never felt more hopeless and disconnected. Mm -hmm. And without a way out, I can't figure out what I'm going to do long term. Mm. And that's why people are taking medically assisted suicide. Yeah. And we don't want to talk about that. But for a lot of people, it is better to die. That's how <laughs> it feels for me today. And that's the thing that I can't. I, I, I can't even. So, like, obviously, as somebody who's going through what you're going through, like, I think after this podcast, I'll have to... Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about resources and reaching out and, and, you know, going through this time together, that bigger picture that, you know, you have me, but I am not a social worker. I'm not a nurse. No, I'm not a, a psychologist too, right? Yeah. Like, oh yeah. yeah. Life. And yeah. so do all my friends, you know, everybody who loves me wants to help me, but under this capitalist regime, they can't even help themselves. Yeah. You know, my friends don't have an extra room for me and my dog. My friends don't have any extra money. Nobody knows where I can get a job. And so everybody's just kind of like, hang on, get through it. Yeah. I've and if, been hanging on. Yo, and, and quite frankly, I see these jobs all the time opening up in social services. And I just quit sharing them because I know they are high- uh, turnaround, high burnout, hard on your mental health. And quite frankly, if you do have any type of voice, which you do, then you're suddenly, you know, let go within six. I months. will always be blacklisted by the system because yeah. I care. You know, I said yeah. that to my friend the other day. She was like, Danielle, you can't leave social services. You care so much. We need people like you. And I said, no, you will never have people like me in yeah. that industry because we will be fired every time yeah. because we will break every rule because the rules are senseless and careless. And because I've been there, I'm not going to do them to somebody else. Yeah. And they know that they mm -hmm. know that I'm not going to force somebody to do some arbitrary rule that's going to hurt them yeah. because they know that I'm empathetic Yeah. and they don't want that in the industry. They want no. people stick to policy and procedure well and like you said really who stigmatize you that that's oh, yeah. what they you know they really want those types of people in those positions and that's why when I talk about the racism that I experience and other uh, indigenous people experience like we know when we're tr being treated poorly when we're looked down upon when when we we could do nothing in the eyes of this person to be a human being and, and you're going through that as a person with mental health issues. And I just, I hate it. I hate that but this what is if where you're we're both, at. You know, right? that's, that's yep. what keeps me up at night. Because yep. I don't want to be seen as this like white woman who's coming on here being like, listen to my problems. Because that's not what this is for mm -hmm. me. What this is for me is the recognition that if I was, if, if I struggled with one more issue, there's mm -hmm. no way I'd be alive. That mm -hmm. is just a fucking fact. Yeah. If I was in any way experiencing any other marginalization, I would not have made it. I would not have wanted to make it. I don't even know right now if I want to make it. Yeah. So we really need to start addressing this because people are going to die on wait lists. People are going to die when they ask for help, you know, and 
nonprofits are failing us and they're giving the illusion that help is out there. You know, even the people working inside of these organizations don't understand how their own organization works. You know, the doctor said to me, oh, we hooked you up with a therapist. No, you didn't hook me up with a therapist. You hooked me up with some guy who's called a caseworker who gave me a five day group exercise on if I'm an addict or not. Uh, that's not the therapy that I need, my friend. Like, I don't need to go to a five-day substance use course. I've actually done a 15-year substance use course, and I've identified it's a problem for me. So I know that. Thanks. Um, I'd love to get some help from my mental health so I can stop managing that with substances. That would be great. Yeah. But I don't need a five-day substance use course. And so even, like, the people that are working there don't know how their own organization works. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I find too, is that uh, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing and you're just not getting the proper services. I, I hear the great talking points from these uh, folks with, uh, you know, poli sci backgrounds, like just saying the right things like, oh, we have wraparound services. And it's like, no, you don't. I have the absolutely never knows. seen that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've never triggers. You have wraparound trauma. I get to go to 15 different places and be told we can't help you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is the real issue because like, you know, people want to believe let's pretend it's a great world. And Danielle Smith actually likes people and cares about Albertans. You use those terms of we have wraparound services and, and we have housing and we have this and we have that. But the truth is you really don't. I don't qualify for anything. I want, I want folks to know that. Like, I want folks to know I filled out every paperwork. I have applied for H two times. It is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's a full-time job applying for H. You have to know exactly the right words to get applied, to to have your application approved. I've been declined twice. I was declined rental uh, subsidy. I was declined income support. I don't think people understand. And you don't get a reason when you're declined. They just say you're declined. You have no, no idea why. I, I couldn't agree more. I see that in like Indian affairs federally. You know, I, I just see that same thing where there's no real rhyme or reason. There's no accountability in any of these systems. So, of course, like the concept of falling through the cracks, well, there was never a proper sidewalk to begin with. And I think that's the the like people live in a real falsehood of what the system is and what it's designed to do and the truth is is it isn't designed to care for people and then let, that's why you get these folks with stigma um in, at the helm and folks like yourself who do care you know needing this care and not getting it so yeah i mean healing is for the wealthy it's an yeah. industry you know yeah. it's not for everyone and the number one thing that most people are experiencing who are in crisis is poverty I have struggled to find safe work my entire life because I don't have certifications, because I do experience manic lows. uh, So I struggle with that. And so sometimes I have to take time off from work. Um, I have a hard time finding safe industry. So I just don't think people understand what that's like, your whole life to struggle finding a place. I have no clue where my place is. I've desperately looked. And, you know, people give me a lot of accolades. They say, oh, Danielle, we appreciate what you say so much. Well, that doesn't pay my bills. No. I'm really tired. 
Yeah. And I, I, I can't come up with a long-term solution. I think that's what people don't understand. What am I going to do long-term if for the rest of my life, I'm going to experience this cycle of mania and low? That's probably going to be my reality. So yeah. what am I going to do long-term if that's what I'm going to be experiencing? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I'm going to throw this out there because I think the most depressing stats that people can see, and I don't have my stats up, but I do know that we are the most underfunded when it comes to uh, provinces, underfunded provinces when it comes to uh, age, but we're also the lowest number of recipients given for the population that there should be. So like, if you look at any stat out there of how many people in a specific area have a mental health issue, it let's just throw a number out there. It's like five to 10% we have like 0.001 percent um age recipients like it's it's really like disproportionately oh. wrong and, and let's talk about age for a second yeah oh yeah let's talk okay, about so age let's, let's pretend the greatest thing happens i get approved for age i get to i get i get age well let me tell you right now i'm super happy to say it my rent is 1350 i do not have a partner i do not have a roommate i live in a 416 square foot apartment my rent is 1350. If I got approved for H, the absolute most I would get would be 900. Mm -hmm. So how do I pay for my rent? I'm $450 short with my best case scenario. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't think people understand that at all. And then if you are on H and you have any sort of disability that needs medications, or God forbid you have a physical one, you need a wheelchair, um, anything like that. And like we it, talk about joy. I'll tell you about how they rob people of joy who are on disability. Yeah. You get married. If you yeah. get married and you're on disability, you lose your disability. So you're not even allowed to be in love. We take everything from disabled people. They don't get to be normal in any way. And it's not just because you get married doesn't mean that your partner is now going to be able to support you. I mean, look at the world we're existing in. Most people couldn't support their partner on their income. So it doesn't even make sense. They don't even look into the income of the partner. They just say, oh, you're off of it. Yeah. So there's certain places you can live, certain neighborhoods you can go. Can you have a pet? Probably not. I filled out the affordable housing and I have a dog and that dog is sometimes the only reason why I stay alive because who's going to feed her? Who's going to take her for a walk? But I couldn't have a dog and get one of those apartments. So I'd have to give off. I'd have to give up the animal that gets me outside, the animal that gets me up in the morning. So we don't even allow disabled people and mentally ill people to have a care animal. We, we're not even allowed to have pets. I know it's not right. I'm sorry. I really appreciate you being so open and honest talking about this on the podcast so that other people can see how actually shitty this whole entire system is. It's the one way that I can use my privilege, you know, because there are so many folks that don't have a dad who has an apartment that they can come on their computer and say this. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why this is happening because Everybody in the general public doesn't understand this. And so it just continues to happen. So Mm -hmm. if I'm at least going to sit in this skin, in this apartment with nothing else to do, I'm going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to talk about it as it's really happening. And I'm not going to censor it. I'm going to say the organizations. I'm going to say the care that I've received. And I'm just going to further blacklist myself, I guess, from society. Because at this point, I've lost everything. 
There's yeah. really nothing else they can take from me. You know, I tried to get a job at Alpha House working nights, the night shift at Alpha House, and they denied me. So I'm not getting hired anywhere. So I might as well be open and honest about what I'm experiencing. And I mm -hmm. hope that it will make it better. I doubt that it will. I don't think that anything is going to change right now. I think we're going to see things get a lot worse. And I think a lot of the people that I love are going to die. Yeah. And I honestly hope that I'm not one of them. But at this at this time, I can't see a long-term solution for me or any of the people who are experiencing what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. And I'm a very privileged person. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Privileged or not, at the end of the day, you know, everyone deserves to feel loved, seen, joy, and have some integrity and consent. And you've described none of those things apply in the current models that we use. Uh, we also talked a little bit about MAID. I uh, just want for folks who don't know in Canada here, we are allowed to get medically assisted uh, deaths. And unfortunately, like it's, it's an interesting conversation to have with people because when I door knock, of course, I get to hear the upper class, uh, upper middle class, um, you know, person say, oh, it works so good for my family when somebody had cancer, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we always hope for. But I never door knock you is the point. The point is I don't door knock you. The point is, is that the the people that it's not working for, they're not the ones answering the door, right? Well, and that's the interesting thing. The only thing that I actually would probably be approved for is medically assisted suicide. So I just really like want that to sit in for people. And I've made people in my industry really uncomfortable when I talk about this because of course, like as a scholar, I'm I'm against it. It's like, yes, we should have better options so people don't have to kill themselves. But as a person with mental health who has experienced crisis after crisis after crisis, it's starting to look like a really peaceful option. It's starting to look like maybe the only rest I could get. Because it's been, you know, I was struggling so much as a teenager. And if someone would go back and tell that girl, you're still going to be struggling in your 30s, I wouldn't have wanted to do it. I just would have wanted to go out. And that's really how I honestly feel. And I just don't know if that's what we're talking about in these academic circles, because I don't know if those academic people could feel this way, because yeah. I don't know if they have the constant threat of crisis the same way that I do. And that's not me taking away from their struggle. I know they struggle. But they always know they're going to be hired somewhere. Like they have a certification, they have safety. They were able to make it through the world as a neurotypical. I don't blame them for that. I'm happy for them, but that hasn't been my experience. And I'm really, really tired mm -hmm. and I'm tired of figuring it out. And I can't this time. I always, I always figure it out. And this time I'm sitting in my dad's apartment going, what are we going to do? And I have no idea. You know, um, I'm just going to throw this out at you because, uh, you know, I'd, we've had to adjust. My brother has been living here almost for two years now. And uh, I have another friend and their family has been living in a hotel for almost two years now. And like you, you know, uh, my my friends like this family that lives in a hotel, they've gone through all of the services. They're always bumming money from somebody in order to stay at a hotel for another night. And uh, during Stampede, all of those prices increase. So they are homeless for the two weeks. And 
this is the state that we're living in for folks who are low income or for folks like even in your situation where it's like, it's not from a lack of you trying not to have I a have job. worked my whole life. Yeah. I would like every conservative to hear that. I have worked my whole life. Yeah. I have done so much work. You know, I was just working 120 hour work weeks to try to get hired somewhere in yeah. a, in a, in a living wage. Yeah. I have put in work and you know, I, I tried to go to university. I almost threw myself out the stained glass window at Mount Royal because mm. I was in such a bad trauma cycle and so depressed, you know, so I've tried. And that's what I think that these people don't understand. It's like, I think there's this idea that like, I'm lazy. People like me are lazy and we want a handout and we don't want to work. Why, why would, why would we not want that? Do you Everybody. know how bad I feel about myself that I don't have like a career or like any sort of mastery? I feel horrible it's humiliating and it's humiliating especially if you're smart and I, I do feel smart so it's like I feel like my potential is just like a noose around my neck you know because I can't seem to make anything happen mm-hmm. and it's not for lack of trying I have tried so hard so I just think that that's like I've done trauma therapy and what happens is I go for an hour I tell a therapist about some horrific thing that happened to me I leave I'm disassociated, I'm unsafe, I go, I use, I drink, I harm myself, something like that, right? Because I'm in the state of disassociation. So that therapy hasn't worked for me. I've tried EMDR therapy, but because I have complex PTSD, I just disassociate. It's not effective. I, 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 I've tried yeah. every modality. I've been to treatment three times. Oh. Like, I don't, what's the answer? Yeah, well- I know that we need you here. I know your dad needs you here and I know your dog needs you here, but I know that that's not easy to live. It's about no, dignity. It's about joy. Poor parents, you know, yeah. like you think they're sleeping right now. They don't know what to do either, but lock me in a little house, which is why I understand these parents who get tricked by the government with forced treatment, right? They, they're, they're afraid for their children's life. But what they're missing is the enemy is not fentanyl. I really want people to hear that from my story. The enemy and the bad part, the, 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 the fear in my life is not fentanyl. The fear in my life is lack of resource. Yeah. The fear in my life is unable to get safe mental health care. I really want people to hear that. The, the, the corrupt bad part of my life is not fentanyl or opioids or benzos. The corrupt part of my life is the government and the resources and the lack of long-term plan. That's what's making me suicidal right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wish there was a better way to deal with all of this, but I know that I'd, I've, seen, I've seen the system. It doesn't work. And I've seen the voters are so ignorant on every order of government, let alone the solutions, let alone complex uh, PTSD, let alone like they're, they're just not interested in having these conversations, even when they're directly impacted by them, frankly. Um, well, the that's most- cognitive dissonance, right? Oh, How many no. of these people are and even like the hierarchy of mental health, you know, maybe if I had anxiety and depression. Yeah you know, which is more palpable and there's more sympathy for, but I have a personality disorder. So when I act out, I, you know, engage in risky sex. I, I use substances. I physically harm myself, you know, 
those things are uglier and scarier and people don't have sympathy for it. You know, if I'm having a panic attack, Bell Let's Talk Day is advocating for me. But if I'm punching myself in the head in my apartment because I'm stuck in psychosis, people are like, whoa, this girl is too much. Yeah. Too much. Yeah. That is what I hear from partners, from doctors, from social workers. You are too much. And you know what? Maybe I am, but I am. So please help me. Yeah, no, I feel you. I see it on TikTok a lot um, where folks will like be as open and honest as you are right now and talk about I've seen a black man talking about trying to deal with a doctor who everybody had accolades about, but he was um, stimming. He had autism and he was stimming. And apparently a big black man stimming is like the scariest thing on the planet planet for whoever this person was. And it it was a, a, a white woman who got scared. And it's like back to the conversation of stigma. This is literally just an autistic person existing in the world and he says he has to spend more time trying to uh, make calm other people down from his stemming behavior and I'm like what are we doing how is this person a medical professional that this poor guy can't get simple care because he's uh, has autism and where are the other people who would understand him do they have anyone on staff who has autism do they have anyone (sighs) staff who is who is black yeah. Do they have anyone? Because I, I've been in psychosis, so yeah. I understand what it's like. So this is why I'm advocating for people who experience things to be in these positions. You know, yeah. how yeah. amazing would it be if I could work at one of these places? Because I wouldn't be afraid of that girl with BPD who's punching herself in the head. I wouldn't be afraid of that girl with BPD who's talking about the risky sex behaviors that she's engaging in. I wouldn't respond to her with repulsion. I would respond to her with empathy. I would tell her that I loved her. I would be there for her. I would ask her if she was okay. I wouldn't blame her. I wouldn't tell her what you're doing is unsafe. I would just be there for her. But people like me can't get those positions because we're mentally ill. Benzos always the answer. (laughs) And then what happens, right? So I asked the doctor. So I'm like, okay, so I'm on Suboxone. Well, how long am I on Suboxone for? Well, a year. Okay, well, how do you know that? Yeah. You know, and I don't even think he read my file. I had my intake with his obviously um, intern. He had an intern. I did my intake with her. He comes in the room, scans the computer for 10 seconds and says, here's a, here's a Suboxone prescription. And I kept saying, I really want to see a psychiatrist. I really want to see a psychiatrist. And he finally turned to me and he was like, we get it. We're hearing you. We get it. So the annoyance that I felt in that moment when all I wanted was the validation of like, that's amazing. I'm so glad that you want to get reassessed. I'm so glad that you recognize that you're experiencing some new things with your mental health. You know, the mania is new for me. It's the last five years. I want to be reassessed and I can't get a reassessment in Alberta. It is going to take me months and months and months. Yeah, I'm really sorry. But what I do appreciate is your truth. And I appreciate you sharing your, your story so that we can know what you're going through. Because I think back to that conversation, like it's such a, a secret. It's, it's there's so much stigma. It's like this, the well, secret this that we can't talk about it. 
This is why no one wants to talk about the substances they're yeah. using with the doctor because then they lose all the rest of the care. Yeah. I told him, I told him an hour's worth of things, and what he heard was fentanyl. Yeah. I used fentanyl like four times for a month. Okay. Yeah. It's not sure. I've been experiencing psychosis since September before yeah. I had lapsed on substances. Yeah. So I told him a huge thing, he found one thing. And that's why we don't want to talk about it because it's bigger than substances. Yeah. I'm using the substances to deal with the crisis. The yeah. crisis is not the substances. Jeez. The crisis is the lack of care, the, the threat of poverty, the unsafe work, the rent that's skyrocketing. That's the crisis. The yeah, crisis like why can't we have a conversation about a living wage? Why is that such a, like why... Why? Why? And especially with this age issue, like the fact that age recipients aren't on a living wage, like what else are they expected to do in order to live? It's the same thing with EI. It's like, yeah. okay, so I could go on EI, but it wouldn't be enough to pay my bills. But then if I work, I lose the EI. So that's the things that people don't understand is it's like, if I got a contract, so if my EI was $900, which was what it what it was last time I was on it, it was $900 a month. So I just told you guys my rent is $1,350. Obviously, I had to get other work. And they say, you can work. So I get another job. It's a part-time job. And then guess how much my EI goes to? $34.50 a week. $34.50. So $34.50. So now I still can't pay my rent. So that's what people don't understand because they've never been on EI. Well, so and, and I'll tell you, like I have, don't have mental health issues. My husband doesn't, but the pandemic was such a dick. Uh, we had three major job layoffs. Like we are talking, we have never had job layoffs ever. And uh, so based off of paperwork that was lost in the mail, a technical glitch, he actually never did receive EI twice out of, out of the three job losses because of some bureaucrat in Ottawa being unable to figure out this PIN system for my husband and then saying, well, well you never reported. Yeah, because we couldn't get the PIN system to and work. And this happens all, all the time. time. All I would the time. say anybody who's never called CRA, call them. Your wait is nine hours. You have to have an address for the pin to be sent to. Oh, someone wrote the address down wrong. It's going to yes. be another month now. Sorry, you're not going to get your EI. Right? Oh, sorry, like, you can't get through. We're actually not. We're actually over overdrawn at this department. So nobody can call you back for a week. Oh, you're going to be, it's now going to be three months till you get your money. People don't get what it's like. Yeah. And this is where other hustles come in. Yeah. This is where sex work comes in. Yeah. This is where people with disability and mental illness and I, I, sex work is valid work. I am not making a claim about that. I am just saying. I would have to edit you actually, if you were anti-sex work on this show. Yes, and <laughs> please do. Please don't <laughs> on again. What I'm actually saying is that sex work is a beautiful industry for people who are experiencing disability and mental health that need one, to make their own hours, two, to get cash quickly and without like, you know, if I was to get a job now, I'd be on the next payroll. I wouldn't get a paycheck till the end of the month. Well, I need to pay my rent now. So, so sex work is an industry that actually is very supportive to mental illness. I just would love it if the police and the government would stop making it so fucking unsafe for us to do sex work because I would love to do sex work safely, but because you guys have criminalized it, it's been very difficult for folks to do that. Oh no. I, I have met so many sex workers over the course of my life and how they advocate for sex work. And it's not, it, it's like every other issue 
folks with disabilities, folks with mental health, Indigenous people, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. There are stacks of reports telling the government what to do for sex work to make it better. And what do they do? Nothing. They, they increase, yeah, they increase their budgets for policing. They don't increase it's dangerous the budget for us. I know it's we awful. can't report it because yeah. you know there's no systems to report it. So if we get abused during, like it's just, yeah, and and that's my point to bring well, that up. Is and the other part is is that their systems, whether we're talking about mental health or justice, there's no accountability on them, none, yeah. zero. Yeah. So like it, it, the whole system is messed up. And you know what? I, I try to encourage people to get involved in some capacity so that they can see how messed up the system is. Because I mean, ultimately, if you are a middle class or upper class, you know, privileged person, white person in the suburbs, you don't see any of this until it's too late, until it's your kid, until it's your family member. And it's like, you know, we had all those years to try to change a system. You know, <laughs> and, and know. like you've been no, blacklisted, I've been blacklisted, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm really okay with that because at Me the too. end of the day, I'm a mother who experienced systemic racism in, and systemic misogyny in the stupid medical system. There's been zero changes. If not, it's been worse. And so like, if I experienced that the one time I had to use the system to give birth once, like, of course, it's it's just a train wreck for people who actually need the system normally. Absolutely. You know, <sighs> you know and, as, and as a woman who's had five abortions, and I'll look right in the camera when I say that, I've had five abortions, and thank God I did. Thank yeah. God I was able to receive that care. But is that used against me when I have to go and do those intakes? When I say, yes, I've had five abortions, can I feel the nurse get physically afraid of me? Yeah, most of the time I can. So, you know, even within our own system, you made the choice to have birth. I made the choice not to have birth. And we both experienced misogyny and bullshit as a result of those choices. So yes. once again, as a woman, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Totally. And I, I just to be really clear, I applaud you for having abortions when you know that wasn't meant for you. I had somebody who asked me after I gave birth because we wanted that child. And uh, I had somebody ask me after, well, now that you've had a baby, are you still like uh, pro-choice and pro-abortion? And I'm like, even more so. The idea of forcing a single person to go through that process, and especially the current process that those M M MFs have, <laughs> I would never want to force anyone to go through what I went through for 10 months but more so I enjoyed my pregnancy it was the birth part the horrible horrible misogynistic racist shitty nurses and doctors and then the aftercare uh, nurses that would come and and be so mean and judgmental they had to come to you know my my house Ooh, I just told them don't bother coming you're not helping me and I don't appreciate your judgment and it up to that moment, I was just a Joe Schmo happily drafting wells and pipelines, just didn't care about racism and misogyny and, and trying to change the system. I just didn't care. It was just something that was like, I just want to make money. I want to live a life. I want to have a baby. I want, you know, want to be happy. And that was not, <laughs> it was, it was a falsehood. It was a falsehood that we've all teach our kids and I tried to tell my child, like, you know, they're going to say this, but that's just a lie because really it's just a, an exploit, exploitative 
capitalist system that they want your your labor and then they're going to try to get as much free of it as they can and not give you a living wage not give you proper health care all of those things because for whatever reason the the regular people they're not fighting for that they're fighting justin trudeau's hair not like anything of substance like not calling out Danielle Smith for her lack of giving um, child care and health care and all the, all of the and things. Going to, that and then going to church for. on Sunday yeah. and saying, peace be with you. And also with you, my fellow, my fellow man, let's make sure that we're kind and loving my fellow man. Yeah. And that's what these folks are doing. And that's why, you know, you said safe people and you're pretty much one of the only safe people that I know. And that's why I reached out to you. You know, I've been MIA for the last month. I removed myself from all of the group chats I was in. I removed myself from the rat race of advocacy because it was no longer safe for me. And when I felt the need for community, who did I think of? I thought of you because I knew that I could get that community with you because I knew that you would be safe. And so thank you for that, Michelle, because I've been searching for that community because it's been really isolating, removing yourself from your community. That's been a, it's been a scary time for me yeah. and I'm just trying to figure out where I fit and yeah. I can't. Yeah, I know right now it feels fucking horrible. Um, right now is like the height of SAD, like that seasonal uh, depression as well. And tomorrow is the full moon. So and I, I uh, volunteered at the stress center for uh, for this period of time. And I knew um, even though I wasn't spiritual in any capacity at that time, and I, I considered myself more um, agnostic, you know, I it was very clear every time around the full moon that there was going to be um, an elevated uh, amount of calls to the distress center and such as well. And um, so I, I know that it's just a really hard moment right now and a hard moment you're talking for yourself and and the situation that you're you're in right now and I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart I'm here for you we're going to follow you through this as you need and you know what you reached out to me to talk about this to tell people this is how the actual system is I want people to hear it because I think it's yeah. important it's not um it it people really have the wrong idea of what mental health care is in this province. And um, I also, I want to quickly just uh, loop to um, Pinoca and this, and the facilities that they had there. And I've had some people say, no, I had a great experience, but for indigenous people, I have actually heard the opposite where they don't have a good experience and women were sterilized against their, their care. There's, there's a book that's more centered around white experiences called um, uh, a living hell. And I met the author and, and she talked about issues that they were experiencing there. So it's even documented how shitty our mental health care is from, from start to finish here, <laughs> you know? So I just, and I don't want you everywhere. to feel alone because I know no, it's- like I, yeah. I know what you're saying. I went to Aventa, which has got a pretty good reputation. And I remember we were watching, we were watching Netflix, like all of us girls one night and we were watching a documentary on the uh, Highway of Tears. Mm. Um, that's what the care people put on for us to watch on a Friday night. And we're watching this documentary, you know, and there was one Indigenous girl in the room and all of us white girls are crying. And like, why are we watching this documentary on Friday night? Like with no, we had no consent. This is just what we're watching. And we're watching sure. this documentary. And I look at the Indigenous girl and she looks at me and she goes, 
every single woman in my family died on that highway. Oh. You know, and that's what she's watching. Yeah. And she doesn't get to say, I don't want to watch this. Yeah. And like, what a fail on the treatment center. No. You know, it's like a small moment, but like, what an unsafe place for her to be in. 100%. She gets to watch a documentary about where her whole family died. I'm I don't sorry. know. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing all these things with us. I know we're going to keep this conversation yeah. going. And yeah. I'm, I'm just going to ask you, is there anything else you want to share for today? No, okay, I, it. I think it's a cool series to sort of follow through the journey of getting help because I don't think people know what it really looks like. And I appreciate you letting me share so candidly. And I want people to know that this is not triggering or traumatizing for me. I know that I've cried today and I don't want people to think that like, this has been something that was bad for me. This is actually true healing. And so mm. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. Oh, I'm honored for you to share and and to give that caveat too, because I think yeah, the I don't other want thing to think this was like some sort of exploitative thing where I came on here and got triggered. I reached <laughs> out to Michelle and wanted the voice and want people to know what it's like. And I cried because I'm authentically in it right now. Yes. And I'm authentically feeling from the core of my being. And that's a good thing. Yes. And so I just want people to know that. Oh, I'm so grateful. But and, and that bigger picture, too, is that I think, uh, you know, back to stigma, tears are actually healing in our in our culture. That's what we encourage, because it, it's important that people understand the gravity of like, healing means letting it out. And you did. So I don't I'm not afraid of your tears. I'm not afraid um, to have you be authentically truthful. And I hope that people understand what it is to go through this ridiculous process because I talk on every episode about needing proper health care and culturally relevant health care and yet I don't think people put it together so it is our honor to walk this journey with you and I'm grateful you reached out and we'll do it again when you're ready at the end of the day when you're ready we'll follow do up it. number three let's yeah. see what happens the next place you know <laughs> watch out the next place give this one good care that's right <laughs> all right okay i uh, i'm gonna give some resources here for folks who who might be triggered uh, obviously when we release this uh podcast we'll be putting out all the trigger warnings too because we talked about all of it and we talked about sa we talked about suicide everything so um it, Stonewall Recovery Center is Canada's first 2SLGBTQ treatment facility. You can follow them on X, formerly Twitter, but fun to dead name them because, you know, Elon Musk is a transphobic parent that dead names their child. You could also, so you can follow them at Stonewall YYC on Instagram, Stonewall Recovery, their website, stonewallrecovery.ca. I'm working with them for their gala next week. And I'm just trying to gather some more two-spirit names for anybody who wants to have those names memorialized as part of their commitment to the National Inquiries Calls to Justice and Reconciliation in general. Please feel free to message me or email me if you want their name added. Uh, we also have our book club that's coming up. We're going to be talking about Canada's role in settler Palestine. And uh, that's been a very hard conversation to have when it comes to mental health as well. And if you uh, actually are educated on these issues and want to do action, 
We have the Reconciliation Action Group if you're local here in Calgary. And if you are not local to Calgary, make sure there's a reconciliation committee in your your church, your school, your work, whatever it is you're doing so that you can be a part of action there too. Uh, I'm proud that this podcast gives solutions and includes cultural safety training and cultural first aid and all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities, in this case, having Danielle talking with uh, mental health issues, you know, to SLGBTQ, to all to speak their truth. According to the 2023 Quality of Life Report from the Calgary Foundation, 88% of racialized Calgarians feel uncomfortable and out of place because of their religion, ethnicity, excuse me, skin color, language, uh, accent, gender, sexual orientation, which was up from 75% in 2022. 84% of racialized Calgarians believe that racism exists versus only 66% of non-racialized Calgarians. The reason why we have Danielle's on is because she's definitely very aware there's something called racism in this world. Um, I want to say thank you to Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, and Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca. We have a, a great uh, piece about what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. Their work is cultural action tools, so please support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat them here. Internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized uh, folks experience by the structure of inequality and oppression and racism imposed on these lands. So uh, go to racialequitytools.org, uh, racialequitytools.org. They have tons of resource files. What is internalized racism for all QT BIPOC by Donna Evans? And for folks who are white, like I had an experience last week of a person who identifies as gay tell me um, that Black women get a free pass. I, I can't let that go. It is Black History Month. Uh, towards the end of it and at the end of the day if you honestly believe that you believe that you need to spend way more time reading black experiences or or listening to black experiences via podcasts documentaries etc there is so much information out there about how unequal this world is and I mean Danielle's talking about how hard it is to access health care how hard it is to access um mental health care as a white woman. So just imagine how hard it is if you're Indigenous, if you are Black. So anyone who thinks that Black or Indigenous people get a free ride, like you are not paying attention and you are going out of your way to dismiss the traumas and inequities that we experience daily. Uh, Do's and Don'ts for Bystander Intervention by American Friends Service Committee. They have some great um, tips on how to help folks that you see are experiencing discrimination right in that moment. I wish anyone who follows me on my social media would watch anti-racism organizational lead for the city of Calgary, giving an internal committee presentation on the journey of becoming an anti-racism leader. This is free on YouTube. If you search journey of becoming an anti-racism leader, you have tons of new information given to you by a black man. So again, Black History Month, folks. I mean, I want to just sit here and talk about the joy and the amazing things that Black people have given us. But the truth is, Canada doesn't want to talk about their problems. <laughs> I seen a great TikTok the other day. Or I don't. I, 
actually think it was a webinar where the biggest problem and struggle that uh, BIPOC people have in this country is explaining what racism is because there is such a denial of what racism actually is that instead of tackling, tackling the um, solutions and, and telling the experience, we have to even explain what racism is because of the denial. So it's Black History Month, folks. If you haven't read from a Black author, if you haven't watched a documentary, if you haven't watched or listened to a podcast, please put some effort towards it um, because it's important that we all start understanding where we're coming from. Uh, Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our, our traumas and reports, commissions and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. I couldn't even show up to the February 14th march. If I saw another politician say the words, we are so here to listen, I, I would probably punch him in the face. I'm just not in that space anymore. I can put up with lies. So like this information is out there for anyone to pretend it's not there. I just, I can't even listen to these lies anymore. Honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize, you know, the oppressed in their budgets with gender equity plus, if they're not acknowledging, if they're cutting violence prevention programs, uh, indigenous education in we're seeing a massive attack on the trans community right now, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that you are directly negatively impacting equity seeking people, demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to actions, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Here in Alberta, the Kenny government created 113 pathways to justice. So to have a look at that 231 calls to justice, we're seeing no movement, the opposite. We're seeing our premier attacking the trans community. When I talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit, Two-Spirit is under the umbrella of this. Like the fact that we have so many white, racist, LGBTQ that don't understand the solutions are in this national inquiry. Um, I, I, I'm just sad for you that you won't take the time to read it. It is way better than the National Action Plan on Gendered Violence if you were to read both, but you're not part of my book club, so of course you don't know. Anyway, municipally, we have a white goose flying report denying all of these reports as a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in every institution with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand changes from these politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they have zero business running. Like, seriously, how is anybody supporting Palestine? My God. Um, so clearly not understood by all parties and politicians. Community organizations, sports clubs, Google articles on how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies. Uh, Stephanie Harp and I had an emergency podcast over a year ago now to write about the crises that we're facing. Uh, you can go to aboriginalalert.ca to find out about missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit. 
Uh, you can also go to the Missing Children Society of Canada. They also have an app you can download. I really uh, promoted for over a year the women, womenshomelessness.ca, the demand for urgent action to protect the lives of Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit, and gender-diverse people experiencing homelessness. I never heard from anyone. Uh, federal housing advocate Marie Josie Houle released a report saying uh, that the forced evictions being uh, puts people at risk for uh being harmed and violates their charter of rights. They said that the encampments have sprung up across the country, amounting to a, a national human rights crisis. Daniel Smith dismissed those calls from the Canadian uh, housing advocate to end the forced eviction of homeless people from these 10 uh, encampments. This just came out. And I just don't hear enough people advocating to follow this, to see these homeless camp evictions as against everybody's charter rights. Uh, on February 16th, we found out from the Globe and Mail, Alberta's drug deaths are soaring to the highest level ever recorded with 1,700 people recorded in the first 10 months of 2023. So that's how many people we are losing. Um, Alana Smith is one of the reporters on this from the Globe and Mail. Um, if someone you know is using sub substances, please don't use alone. You all know, I've, if you follow me, I talk about Narcan. I can get you Narcan. We can get you things like that. But there's also uh, apps that you can use. There's the Brave, Doors, Lifeguard apps. And you can call the National Overdose Response Service at 888-688-NORS for support and to develop safety plans. If you're, emotion, if you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 855-242-3310. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They have a website, hopeforwellness.ca. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. It is a national toll-free uh, crisis line as well. The Indian Residential School Survivor and Family Hotline is 866-925-4419 and the Native Youth Crisis Hotline is 877-209-1266. For non-Indigenous, there is a new uh, phone number you can use and it's 988. You can also um, go to the crisisservicecanada.ca. It literally goes to 988 now. Uh, Kids help phone 1-800-668-6868. Uh, we had a functioning 211 here in Alberta. I'd be curious if it just has uh, become its own entity or if they actually work with 988. Uh, that's the problem we're having in Alberta right now is we have a premier that is committed to being anti-feds. <laughs> so of course... That's just less and less services available to everybody. Anyway, if you're following uh, for 2SLGBTQ crisis supports, you can go to lifevoice.ca. Uh, the Trans Lifeline is 877-330-6366. Uh, thanks to the Trevor Project for the youth, 1-866-844-7386. Violence is our everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation faces it. This is self-care, how I take my power back. 
why I started my podcast to speak freely without interruption, tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions. As many people don't want to hear the truth, but and they don't know anything about us as well. Um, I share issues on, I don't even like to term microaggression. It's just racism. You know, learn about being trauma-informed. You heard what Danielle was talking about today. I hope it really changes the way you understand what trauma actually is. Folks like me are dealing with internalized racism, gatekeepers, uh, folks that survive off the status quo, folks who are in their trauma. Um, and please, and if you encounter somebody who is in psychosis, or if you do encounter someone who is in a mental health crisis and you deem it necessary to phone the police, I am begging you to wait with them. If you do make that call to phone the police, please stay and bear witness to the treatment that they receive from those police officers, especially if they're a person um, of of color. Um, that's really, really important. You need to ask that they receive compassionate care and ensure that they are not violated further. So if you do phone the police on someone experiencing psychosis in your community, please stay and bear witness to what happens when the police are there. Uh, Walls Down Collective also is trying to help folks in psychosis. So you can also call them as well. So Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for me, Indigenous peoples and folks with disabilities, QT, BIPOC, and others. I want to say thank you to my guests, first and foremost, for being so open, honest, giving resources and explaining what it's actually like. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, to my granny, to my mom, what strength looks like through your examples. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her. I am a second generation proud Calgarian. Thank you to my husband for producing and editing the show. On top of being my husband, childhood friend and father of our child, he has supported my journey down the red road and has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, we are blessed to learn from you daily, and we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person, and I hope my daughter and my family will be proud of us trying to discuss these heavy topics in a way that they'll understand. Um, my patron account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. A few of you have been sending me some messages and, and they lift my spirit. So thank you. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. You can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And I want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradition. My beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. Thank you folks for listening. <laughs>